I met my best friend Anne in 1985. And the Babysitter's Club kept her friendship alive. Then Emily was born in 1988. And she said, Thanks, Aunt Esme. These books are great. Now we're all grown up and we're living our dreams. As a writer and a scholar and an expert on teens. And we're gonna start again from the very first book because we're stuck. Stony Welcome to Stuck in Stony Brook, a podcast about the Babysitter's Club. Today we're discussing book 39, Poor Mallory. I guess I didn't really give that an exclamation point. Poor Mallory. <laughs> Poor Mallory. Yeah. Wait, are we supposed to be excited? <laughs> Somebody please tell me what the title of this book is. <laughs> Do you have your one sentence summaries? Yes. Fantastic. Mine is Poor Mallory is... Poor Mallory. Get it? Ooh. Wow. <laughs> Was get it part of your sentence that you wrote down? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Had ellipses and then get it and then question mark. That's one sentence. Huh. I actually didn't think about that until now. Mm. Double meaning. See? Mm-hmm. Glad I brought it up. <laughs> What's yours, Emily? Um, mine is... Mr. Pike gets fired and poor shaming is alive and well in Stony Brook. Mm -hmm. Accurate. Uh, Mine is Mallory gives a TED talk on mortgages to her younger brothers and sisters. (laughs) So good. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Before we get any further, we should probably back up and tell you about the members of the podcast. I'm Anna Chikala, a freelance writer. I'm a mischievous pragmatist with a sweet tooth. I'm Esme Schaller, an adolescent psychologist. I'm kind of bossy, but I have a big heart. And I'm Emily Crandall, a feminist scholar. I'm a total individual and I like health food. Nope, didn't make it. <laughs> nope. Uh, if you want to learn more about us and how we know each other, check out our prologue episode. Also, rate and review us. It really helps people find the podcast. If you have any questions, comments, or commentary about anything BSC related, drop us a line at stuckinstonybrook at gmail.com. And you can also support us on Patreon now. Very exciting. Patreon.com slash Stuck in Stony Brook. Lots of great content there for patrons. Woohoo. So, Emily, this seems like a really uh, capitalist book. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot about work. A lot about how poor you should be or should not be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, my single note for my corner today is just welfare. <laughs> there. Uh, yeah. So do we want to do, I guess we've teased some of the plot, right? Mr. Pike gets fired, which I think has been foreshadowed in a couple books, right? Yeah, I think so. Uh, I don't remember which books exactly, but I do remember that there was some trouble brewing with his job. Mm-hmm. He's been stressed. Um, he's a lawyer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's a corporate lawyer. Okay. Interesting. I also thought it was interesting that Mallory talks about how their house is very, is like small and modest, but then they like rent out that big beach house in Sea City. Mm -hmm. That's actually the first thing I thought of was no Sea City this year. Yeah. Yeah. No trips, no dolls. Yeah. I mean, I still think there's a lot that doesn't add up about the Pikes in general, but this is a question we have to save for Anna Martin when we, when we uh, interview her. About all of the <laughs> when, when, uh. um, but in general, you're right. There's a lot of discourse around working and being poor, and um, there's a couple different places where Mallory talks about different forms of welfare. So on um, page ten, 
they talk about food stamps the kids do. And she gives a kind of interesting synopsis of what she calls the purpose of food stamps. Or it starts on page nine. So Mallory's, um, this is before they know that Mr. Pike has been fired. and But Mrs. Pike has given them a heads up that he might be. And Mallory's kind of internal monologue, right? She retreats to her room. She needed to think. Um, and she says, in terms of extras, what would those things be that we couldn't buy anymore? New clothes? What would happen if we outgrew our clothes? Blah, 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 blah. Uh, would we have to get food stamps? I had always heard about food stamps, but I wasn't sure what they were or how they worked. Just that they were supposed to help people, quote unquote, stretch their dollars. It's kind of an interesting take on on food stamps mm-hmm. there. And then um, later, she talks about actually going on welfare. So on page 83, oh, Mallory's getting teased at school or like bullied, I guess, by some girls who are like making fun of Mr. Pike for losing his job. And they say things like, they speculate about why he lost it, right? Like, is he stupid? Whatever. Um, and mm-hmm. so Mallory and all of her brothers and sisters, the Pike Club, are having a meeting where they're all discussing how they're getting teased. As he's going to cry. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And then Mallory's like, well, you know, I'm having a hard time. Like, people are teasing me at school. And she's like, you know, they're passing around these notes, blah, 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 blah. And then Vanessa asks what Nan's note says. And it says Mallory's going to be on welfare. And then she's like, and then she says to the other kids, first of all, that's not true. I hope I thought. And secondly, if it were true, it's not something to tease about. Besides, a lot of people go on welfare, which is kind of interesting. So there's like, on the one hand, I think an attempt here to normalize welfare, but it's also, you know, there's also a lot of rhetoric in the book about like Mr. Pike needing to take care of his family and the kind of separation of the sort of work that Mrs. Pike does at home, as opposed to the work that Mr. Pike does, um, that that's all linked to sort of his role as a provider and specifically in the Mm -hmm. context of family, which really tracks with kind of debates around welfare in the nineties specifically. Um, right. Cause if this book is published in 1990, you have, you know, you're on the heels of like, nearly two decades of discourse around welfare queens, which like largely paints particularly um, recipients of color, welfare recipients of color as sort of criminal, as lazy, as indigent, right? All these things. Um, But then you have, you know, in 1996, Clinton enacting this like horrible welfare reform act that like completely hollows out um, aid to families in particular, right? So in in Mm -hmm. 1990, you still had, um, aid to dependent families with children. Oh no, AFDC or ADF, whatever. <laughs> One of the, what, the the words are in some order, um, which mm-hmm. was a program that was ex- like direct cash assistance. So basically, the federal the federal program the the federal program was enacted like with the New Deal in the 30s. I think 1935 with AFDC in particular, and the deal was that the federal government would match dollar for dollar any dollar states spend on direct cash assistance to families. And then you have, um, you know, the first welfare queen uh, who was named in the press, Linda Taylor. Um, So Mm -hmm. like she starts getting 
um, attention in like 1974 for her welfare fraud, which was like, you know, she had a bunch of different aliases and like a bunch of different sob stories about her family, whatever. And there's now a lot of attention to kind of like the structural conditions that led to her extreme poverty and like how, why it was somewhat easier to kind of try to game the welfare system than it would be for her to get a lucrative job that would actually care, you know, care adequately for her children. I think the New Republic did a really interesting profile of her in 2019. I'll find it and link to it um, in the episode notes. But so so this is like, you know, 15 years at this point in 1990 of like rhetoric around that. And then in 1996, the act that replaces um, the aid to dependent families with children, aid to families with dependent children (laughs) uh, is TANF, Temporary Assistance for Needy Families, which is what we still have. And that Mm -hmm. is a, a bill that has four kind of central purposes. And what it does is it gives block grants to states that states can then use for any kind of program that meets one of the four criteria of the act, which is um, to like let children be cared for in their homes, uh, to get people back to work, to discourage out of wedlock childbearing, mm-hmm. and to promote uh, two family households. So two parent two parent households. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. So like. In the last, a, a ton of research has been done on like how that has dr- dramatically changed the landscape of, you know, assistance um, in the last, you know, 20 years, I guess, 25 years. Um, but like as of last year, basically only 26% of the dollars spent through TANF go to directly to families in cash assistance. A lot mm-hmm. of it goes to programs and especially in really conservative states that are like, Um, Some of it goes to crisis pregnancy centers. Some of it goes to um, programs that like counsel young, you know, churchgoers on like what a good marriage looks like and like all of these Mm. other things that are in no way like filling the gap of actually putting money in the pockets of families who need them. Um, So it's interesting. I think I think on the one hand, Anna Martin's kind of through Mallory, right, narration of welfare is like not this thing to be ashamed of. And in fact, mm-hmm. um, you know, and that's been a, a whole thing about kind of demystifying the myth of the welfare queen, too, is that like most people who receive be- benefits are white, not black. <laughs> and so, mm-hmm. um, yeah, and I think I think she makes a good kind of gesture here, but the book is still totally, totally mired in like poor shaming in general. I mean, we're supposed to learn that that's bad, but it, but I think it's still yes, it's still, you know, the the background like picture is still like it ends up good because Mr. Pike returns to his role as sort of mm-hmm. as provider right and this vision of the sort of idyllic family that that doesn't need assistance but they're they would have been eligible for it or or it wouldn't have been so bad because they're this kind of like idyllic family it sort of stays in, intact in that way um, but it tracks for kind of how welfare was talked about in the nineties and I think unfortunately gestures a bit toward what goes wrong later in the 90s <laughs> yeah for sure that's that's really interesting because I you know so Anne and I were 18 in 1996 and I remember a lot of discussion of that bill in late high school early college and this the rhetoric around it was very much you know sort of I mean we make fun of libertarians a lot I'm not a libertarian but it was sort of the other direction like we can't trust these poor people because they have some kind of moral failing that has made them poor in the first place. So we can't trust, we can't just give them money and trust that they can make their own decisions right. that will be good for their family. And so this is so we can make sure that it doesn't go to crack, you mm-hmm. know, basically is like that was the rhetoric. And so instead of 
giving a cash benefit will give more food stamps and WIC and things like that. And instead of, you know, we'll provide job training and assistance, like right to work stuff. And as long as we can see that you're looking for a job, then we'll give you the assistance that you need. Like a a lot of those ties. And I remember a lot of uh, debate, but also just uh, kind of tacit agreement from society at large that that was a good idea. Yeah. That like this is also how we can help solve the drug crisis is we shouldn't just give people money. Yeah. Because if you're poor, you must want to use it on drugs. I mean, that's a really um, similar uh, debate around like access to methadone clinics and stuff like that being had right now. But also that mm-hmm. narr- narrative that like poor people are poor because of some moral failure is like really old, right? Like the first kind of iteration sure. of of American welfare state was like imported English poor laws, basically, which was like anyone who's on the street, you know, put them all up in a house and like shut them or shutter them away from society. Essentially, it's like prison, you know, it's like a crime to be so poor that you are, you know, visible <laughs> in, a, in essence. Um, and like we didn't have any kind of federal wel- welfare program at all until 1930s and in large part. Right. That was due to the efforts of like, you know, socialist organizing labor movements and all these kinds of things that were like, no, you know, we we there's a basic level of kind of dessert that <laughs> we're afforded as humans. Right. Tied to decency and um, whatever. Right to life rather than right to work. And mm-hmm. um, but it's like, com- you know, slowly eroded over the course of the 20th century and kind of culminating um, with welfare reform in, in the 90s. At the same time as you also have the federal government kind of hollowing out protections for unions, which we've sort of talked about a little bit on the show before, but um, those things kind of work in tandem. And by the time you get to, you know, the 21st century, the United States spends so little money on, on social welfare. And we're the only, you know, like developed democracy, scare quotes abound, uh, that doesn't have a single uh, social welfare program where Uh, with like universal, any kind of universal program, right? So there are three kinds of social welfare programs in general. There's universal ones, which means you have access to the benefits just by virtue of being a citizen. There are ones you pay into, right? Which is like social security, um, unemployment, all these kinds of things. And then there are means tested ones. And so that was another difference between the ADFC and TANF was that um, uh, the like structure of entitlement changed. All right. So below before it was just like when you're below a certain income threshold, you're entitled to these certain benefits and you just get them without question. And now the means tested ones, you have to demonstrate like that you're um, finding work and like all of these other kinds of criteria. So not only is there less money, it's it's harder to access. Um, Yeah. And it's really easy to fill out all those forms and stuff when you're not sure if your kids can eat that week. (laughs) It's like super, super fine. Super. That's when you have all the. Yeah. ability and bandwidth to do things yeah, like that. Yeah, but the United States is the only, only again, developed democracy that does not have any uh, social welfare programs that are not tied to your, basically, your relationship to work. Aren't you glad we live here with our mortgages? <laughs> You're awful quiet, Anne. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was just soaking it all in. I was like, oh, this is, this is like Emily's little TED Talk. <laughs> yeah. Well, I do teach this stuff. I didn't have to do any research for today, <laughs> which is why I can't remember if, if it's ADFDC or ADFC. <laughs> uh, it would have been nice to have you explain mortgages uh, like like Mallory does. 
Uh, I loved her explanation of yeah. mortgage. <laughs> yeah. I mean, do 11-year-olds know what a mortgage is? I definitely did not. I barely know what a mortgage is now. Yeah. <laughs> I I don't think I did when I was 11. I'm trying to – I feel like my nearly 11-year-old might, but only because we just sold our house, right? So we talked a lot about how we didn't really own it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I feel like if you haven't – you know, if Mallory's lived in her house her whole life, I don't know why she would necessarily know what a mortgage is. Right. But so weird. maybe now there's better education or maybe it's because my kids are being raised in the Bay Area where real estate is like a disgusting hobby. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah, it is a disgusting hobby. Everywhere. But I yeah, but I definitely didn't know what a mortgage was when I was 11. No way. And I don't think I really knew until I was like 35. Yeah. <laughs> Right. I don't. I Maybe. mean, I think I learned today when I read this book. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. I know. Um, yeah, there's also so in that passage when Mallory's explaining what a mortgage is to her siblings, she talks about how like right if you can't pay it, the bank will essentially repossess your home, and that's potentially what leads to homelessness. And then when they're talking later, when Mr. Pike is reemployed and they're all dandy again. They're like talking about what they were scared of. And when they said that, you know, Mr. Pike's like, oh, well, that would have never happened. There would have been all these other things that would be stop gaps to homelessness. And mm-hmm. I'm like, OK, like for you guys. Yeah, but not the case mm-hmm. for other kinds of families. I think yeah. that speaks a lot too mm-hmm. to like, you know, the 2008 housing crisis we could look at in those terms. And um, yeah, definitely. I, I think that's, you know, your central point at the beginning of the uh, obviously that's Anna Martin's intent was to reverse poor shame, right? To say that these are legitimate social programs that people should access when they need to. But the the choice of the Pikes as this sort of like upstanding nuclear family with all of these really nice kids mm-hmm. that like care for each other. And then, um, you know, I'll get more into Mr. Pike's psychology uh, in a few minutes, but ultimately he is pounding the pavement looking for jobs consistently, mm-hmm. right? Like they have a very, like they're doing the things you're supposed to do. Right. When you're unemployed. They're good, poor people. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think yeah. that tension is is there for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was hoping Mrs. Pike was going to become the sole provider for the family mm-hmm. by becoming like a computer programmer or something. That'd be Gosh. Cool. Right? She knows how to use print shop for sure. Well, yeah. yeah. And in that moment when Mallory's like, uh-oh, I think dad's enjoying, you know, reproductive labor too much it's like so what the fuck who cares like (laughs) there's one other thing before we move to psych on 126 uh mr pike's like in midway through the interview process and then she's like confused about why he has to do so many interviews and then he laughs and he says maybe metro works likes to torture prospective employees and Mal says, are you sure you want a job at a place that tortures its workers? And he says, don't look to gift ho- don't look a gift horse in the mouth. And I was like, OK, well, like what job doesn't torture its workers? That's just incorrect. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> that's like the yeah. premise of work. Of course. That's, not- <laughs> that's a good Emily take. Oh, man. Yeah, I really liked this book. And we were talking a little bit before we started recording that we like Mallory's voice. Mm hmm. Um, and I thought that it was well done. Um, b- before I get into my my main thing, I think I need to say for our listeners something that I may not have. I don't know if I've said it on the podcast before, but I certainly haven't said it in a while that 
Um, I'm a child and adolescent psychologist for a reason. Um, I don't really like adults and their problems, and I have a little bit of an empathy deficit for adults and their problems. So I um, intellectually understand that it's, you know, they're dealing with the same mental health problems that teenagers are in a different way, but I don't, I don't want to hear about it. Um, that's kind of like where I stand personally, which, which would mean I would not be a good psychologist for you if you're an adult. So you're better off seeing somebody else. That's, that's my, my take. So Mr. Pike's like wah wah bullshit in this book really made me angry. <laughs> I was so mad at him. Not that you're not like obviously if you get fired and there's not cause, especially if there's not cause, right? It sounds like the whole firm that he works for was having trouble and they laid off a ton of workers at once. So it wasn't anything personal about Mr. Pike's work. Um, but he's just like a fucking baby about it, particularly his like little manhood being bruised bullshit of not getting to be the breadwinner. And I know this is a legitimate thing. And I know this is something that, you know, people who specialize in like men's psychology work with. Um, and it's like really not my jam. I was, you know, I, I didn't mind if he's going to be like a little depressed and in his pajamas and wallowing in self-pity, but he was like super snappy with the kids and with Mrs. Pike about, them trying to be helpful and encourage him and, you know, be there for him. And I'm like, dude, you had eight kids. Did you only want to have them to like come home for half an hour at dinner time? Like you should be nicer to them. I was just really, really mad at his irritability. I was like, grow the fuck up, pull up your pants. It's not that big of a deal. You have an advanced degree. You're going to be okay. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you know? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Did I, were either of you annoyed at his like, Bitching and moaning. I mean, I think being mean to the kids. I, I didn't like those stuff with Claire when Mal com- is coming home and, like, worried that he didn't, like, pick up her little sister. Like, that made yeah. me feel very sad. Um, And, like, I felt well for, for them. Like, how long was he unemployed for? I was trying to figure that out. Cause I mean, just one book. <laughs> I know, but is that, like, two weeks or was it, like, a few months? I think it was about a month. Because the job okay. at the Delaney's was a month long, right? Yeah. And Mal's at the Delaney's the whole time. I mean, okay. in this climate, that is no time to be unemployed. <laughs> mm. Yeah. That's well, really and he fast. starts being nasty, like, on day one. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I understand where he's coming from. It's like, I don't think he should, he should always show more patience to his children, I feel. But I do think, like, how you were saying, you know, Yes, your ego is bruised and he is the sole provider. But I think like what happens is you you wrap yourself in the identity of your work. So I'm sure like not only is he identifying as this lawyer, but also as like the provider for his family. Mm-hmm. So that is a huge blow to your ego and your confidence. So I don't I think like being broody and kind of like pissy about that is totally understandable. And I think if this had gone on for more than like three weeks it would be an issue but he like he he interviewed for the he had three interviews for the job which means like those interviews had a, at least taken a week to do mm-hmm. which means maybe after two or three weeks he had his first energy with Metro works then he got the job so it means he was only pissy for like two weeks which i think honestly is is okay yeah i mean look like i said i understand it 
Mm-hmm. It's a huge shake to two core pieces of his identity. Like, I get it. I just don't want to hear about it. I was like, your fucking wife, you know, your wife has been running this giant household of kids on her own, doing all this volunteer work and doing all this stuff. And now she's like nose print shop and is like jumping in to do <laughs> computerized tech tech work, right? Temp work and still doing a lot of stuff around the house. And the, your, all of your adorable children are like, we'll pitch in. Like, it's okay. So sorry, dad. And you're just yeah, like, and they're like you know, sitting upstairs adult. crying on one bed because they're like, eh, we don't right. Know. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I just, this is why I work with kids, right? I don't care. Like, boo-hoo, take care of your business. Go cry somewhere else. So I was mad at Mr. Pike. Um, (laughs) I mean, I will say, as someone who has been laid off from a job five times before the age of 32, so I've been unemployed a lot, and most of those layoffs have been because of, like, some business failing. It's never been like I was fired. Um, The stakes were way lower with me because I was single, you didn't have like, eight children. I didn't have eight children. <laughs> so wait, what? My time, <laughs> uh, my unemployment time wasn't as wasn't really stressful. And also, I think this is pre when like I feel like there was more stress about finding a job in general that there is mm-hmm. now. But it wasn't so much the stress. I I felt the ego blow a little bit because mm-hmm. like when you're out of work, you're kind of like oh like. Like, who am I? Mm-hmm. Or, like, what What am I supposed to do now, kind of? Yeah. And that is, especially, I think, when you wrap yourself up in your job, which I had, mm-hmm. it is, like, you're, you just feel like a piece of shit. Yeah. I'm just thinking about how sometimes when I, like, when there have been semesters where I'm only teaching one class or when I was, like, working my dissertation and, like, a stranger would ask me, like, what do you do? Uh, I A lot of times it would just be like, oh, nothing. And Matt used to get so mad. He's like, you don't do nothing. And I was like, well, I'm not really super employed. Like, <laughs> Make podcasts for free. Yeah. 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 <laughs> nothing. Yeah. I mean, I guess I have, I have two responses to that. One is I want to differentiate between Mr. Pike's emotions and Mr. Pike's behaviors. So totally mm-hmm. on board can validate all of that. And you got to suck it up and be there for your family, even though you're feeling like that. That's part of your... Yeah, that's your other big job, dad, you know. Um, and then my second response is like larger societally, like I I don't think that we should be that wrapped up in our jobs as our identity. Right. Like that that worries me. And I think that that is a that's a hard thing. Like I think that sets people up for this kind of failure when capitalism fails them. Well, that's kind of why I um, like to say nothing because yeah. I'm like I have no shame around it. Right. Like, what do you do? Nothing. It's like yeah. people are like, what? I know. You're like, I'm Emily Crandall. Yeah. That's what I do. I'm a total individual. Yeah. You're like, and I like health food. Yeah. I mean, okay. when people ask me what I do, I'm kind of like, I don't know. <laughs> I like, I'm like, I do stuff. <laughs> like, literally, I'm like, don't even know what to say. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, okay. I had a couple other things. One, uh, this is, it sort of surprised me. Not, it didn't surprise me about Mr. Pike, but it surprised me that Mrs. Pike didn't continue to talk with the kids a little bit more about the money issues. So I really loved her explanation at the beginning to Claire about like how getting rejected from jobs feels. So she was talking, um, this was on page nine. She was talking about um, how Mr. Pike is not going to be happy about looking for a new job. 
Um, and Margot asks, why not? And mom says, because looking for a new job, especially when you've been fired, is not easy. Dad will have to hear people say no to him a lot. He might start applying for jobs that are below the level of the one he's got now, and people still might say no. He'll call companies and hear other people say that there aren't any jobs at all. It would be like going over to your friends' houses and hearing each one of them say they didn't want to play with you. Um, and I thought that was like a very good age-appropriate explanation for like how that runaround can feel. Mm -hmm. But then they stop communicating with the kids at all, other than to give them this sort of abject fear that they're going to lose the house and be homeless pretty immediately. And then at the end, when he gets the new job, we find out he's had severance this whole time. Yeah. Like he has, they haven't actually lost any income. And I'm like, why did you freak your children out? Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't understand. I so I feel like some, a little bit more reassurance from them, especially given that there was still a, you know, not a great welfare state, but a better one than we have now. And that he had severance and Mrs. Pike was bringing in this extra income from temping. Like, they they should have reassured the kids a little bit more. Um, I think they got some nice things out of it. I love that Nikki got the paper route, even though I still find that completely implausible because um, <laughs> he's eight. But I, I think that that... Don't forget that about Gabby Perkins. Of, yeah. <laughs> but that level of fear was unnecessary, and I would have expected the Pikes to communicate a little bit more effectively mm -hmm. throughout the rest of the book. So... That was the other thing that jumped out. And then the last was we have this parallel um, baby's heavy handed babysitting lesson again that um, apparently it's the same for Mallory to be shamed for being on potentially being on welfare as it is for the Delaney's to be used for their new swimming pool. Yeah, I thought this one was a little didn't quite add up. <laughs> it was a little thin. So basically, there's this subplot Mallory takes this job at the Delaney's because she needs money. So and it's a steady job. And the Delaney's have just gotten a pool and there's kids that are coming over not in to ground, play with Max. An in-ground in pool. Built in, of course. Oh, built in. Yeah. So um, there's some kids coming over just to swim who don't really want to play with Max and Delaney. To which I say, I mean, duh. I feel like that's the price of being rich and having a pool. Like, but, but, Mallory's like, well, you know, we all need to learn who our real friends are. And I'm like, I don't know if it's the same behavior shunning you because you're quote unquote poor versus wanting to play in the pool more than they're excited to play with the bratty kids who are like bossy and mean. Yeah, that's I think there's a disconnect there too, because right, the setup on when she first goes on her on the job there, Christy's like, don't let them get away with anything. But then that's not how the lesson ultimately resolves itself, right? Like they kind of end up getting away, getting what they want at least, right? Like things go mm -hmm. their way in mm -hmm. a sense. I mean, sure, it's about friendship, but I was like, I, that was a computer. Like that setup didn't really land for me. Yeah. And I don't, look, I mean, it, th that would be hurtful to kids that, you know, you've been swimming mm -hmm. for a while and you want to do something else. And they're like, whatever that one girl who just wants to practice her dives, mm -hmm. um, <laughs> which is I mean, Michelle, Michelle wasn't mad at us. Yeah. <laughs> That's and true. her pool. But we actually wanted to hang out with Michelle. If she wanted to go into the basement and play Nintendo, we would do that. Mm. True. My best friend in yeah. high school, I would text her to ask if she wanted to go swimming, and she would say, no, but you can. And I would go over and swim with her brother and sister. 
Yeah, I just, I, I also, you know, this is this is a little in the weeds, but Mallory is like, do an experiment, you know, say that there's this new rule that you can't swim when a babysitter's there and see who still wants to come over. And then they do that one time and they're like, great, it works. Now we know who our real friends are. Um, I think you would have to conduct that more than one time to be able to draw real <laughs> conclusions about that. I'm just saying there would need to be some replication of those findings. It doesn't meet their criteria for no. science. It doesn't. It's not an experiment. It's a one-time friend manipulation that happened to work out the way you wanted it to. Mm-hmm. But they could mm-hmm. have just not felt like swimming that day. There's a lot of third variables that could have accounted for that outcome. That's all I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to ask you a question about the mean girls, mm-hmm. Valerie and Rachel. Mm-hmm. Well, they're not the meanest ones, right? Those are the followers. Oh, it's Nan. Nan and- White and Janet O'Neill. Right, right. <laughs> Dude, such bitches. Yeah. Would anyone actually make fun of someone's like father losing their job? That just seems really like I feel like when if I was that age, if I was 11, I wouldn't even know that was like something to make fun of. Um, Like I would just, you know what? I, I would just be like, oh, like I wouldn't even know like the ramifications of someone's parent losing their job like I wouldn't actually you know I think that's context specific not age specific like I remember in my Mm -hmm. elementary school there were kids who knew like you know who gets free lunches you know like people talk about whose family are on food stamps like that was like a thing that that people like a knowledge that people you know whispered about and like you knew who lived in the apartments in that on that street that's like not Mm -hmm. safe and like I don't know. That, that that was all stuff that was talked about a lot in all the schools that I went to and, and not in a nice but, way. But that's a little different than directly leaving a note where you can find it or talking about yeah, you want like it right there. Behind their backs. But like right. the same thing. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Well, you're talking about, you know, sort of standard relational aggression, whereas coming forward and being like, your dad's probably stupid is like a di- it's a different level mm-hmm. of a- aggression. Yeah, I, I'm somewhere in the middle. I think like, it's definitely something we saw a lot in like 80s teen movies, right? Mm-hmm. You know, like um, Andy from Pretty in Pink lives on the wrong side of the tracks. Like, you know, we see a lot of that kind of stuff. But I mean, how often they leave the note but, and then they talk about her when she's right there. But do they mm-hmm. say stuff to her directly? I guess not. Because I feel like Mallory gives it to them. She overhears them. Right. But wasn't there something in the beginning of the book where they said something to her? Yeah, I just found it. So they're talking about it at the BSC meeting. It's on page 48. And um, Chrissy said, yeah, she likes to put people down, especially, don't take this the wrong way, Mal, but especially people who aren't good at fighting back. And Mallory says, well, she chose the right person. Jesse and I were eating lunch, minding our own business, when Nan came up to me and said, I heard your dad got fired. What did he do? Steal from his company? Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty bold. Yeah. Which I also <laughs> felt like was very, like, 1980s, like, embezzlement, insider trading, like, like yeah, he- headlines of financial crimes um, sort of thing. So, yeah, I don't know that that was super realistic, um, mm-hmm. except that. You know, I think Nan probably is the sixth grade version of Cokie Mason, and we we don't really know her motivation. She's just anonymously evil. Yeah. I was also hoping um, Mr. Pike would get a job with Watson at the toaster factory. But... Like be the in-house counsel for Sunday. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I thought Chrissy would have been like, oh, maybe Watson can help. But 
Nope. <laughs> that would have been awesome. Yeah. Um, I did like Mal's standing up to Janet and uh, Nan scene where she just like calls them out on talking about her in the in the cafeteria. That was great. It was fun to see. Yeah. Emily, what did you think about all the Pike children figuring out how to make money? I mean, I think that's like kind of sad in the context of what Esme was talking about earlier, where they're like genuinely scared that they're not going to be able to eat. Right. There's a time when like the, the day that he gets fired, one of the kids is like, well, should we not have dinner and like save it for when we're really hungry? And they're just like, that's absurd. And they don't elaborate on like the extent to which that's absurd. Right. Or why that's yeah. an mm-hmm. absurd thing that doesn't need to happen. Right. And so like they wouldn't have had to have hold secret meetings and freak out about making money if they had the parents had to actually talk to them about what was going on in a little bit more detail. Um, so I just like to me, that was all just kind of a bummer. I mean, it also like we've talked a lot about how these books, you know, valorize entrepreneurship and all that kind of stuff. So I think that's like in that more playful sense, it's in keeping with kind of mm-hmm. the theme of sort of work in the books in general. But um, I was thinking more about that in in the way that you were talking about their failures of communication with the kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think there's one money making Pike scheme that you were particularly fond of, Anne. Oh, yeah, Miss Vanessa. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so Vanessa tired. decides to do hair at school <laughs> instead of selling her poems. Yeah. But that just really, like, it's like we're a millennial being like, I'm going to be this when I grow up, but this mm-hmm. this makes money, so I'm going to do hair instead. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Turns out poetry is less lucrative than being a stylist. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, that one was like cute and funny but it was also so sad too right like she doesn't want to tell anyone because she's like embarrassed and right like um mm-hmm. becca's telling jesse about it and jesse's like well is she any good and she's like yeah she did this like super cool we what's it, like a side pony a brushed over side pony yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> but then jesse's like uh oh, poor vanessa she's probably going through a hard time like why don't you invite her over and then it's just this like kind of heartbreaking scene where you know, she's so happy because she's like, oh, I still do have friends. And it's just like, fucking kill me. God. Yeah. No, yeah. it was definitely sad. But I did spit my tea a little bit at Miss Vanessa. I had <laughs> forgotten about that. And it was really funny. <laughs> like, and and also, like, Miss Vanessa is a great stylist name. Like, Yeah. If, uh, and That's it, like, why it's so funny. Yeah. Like, Miss Vanessa. <laughs> <laughs> it's really good. <sighs> All right, Anne. What, what? jumped out at you in this book first they say dibble dibbly oh we learned why much. but oh, we learned what dibble means oh i must have missed that it's, <laughs> it's short for incredible and christy is the the pusher oh, of it God. it sounds like credible oh that makes sense yeah i was very excited to relearn that i guess i don't, don't know if i ever knew it or if i skipped that paragraph the first time but yeah. it's it's overused in this book, I feel. Yeah, along with distant and stale. Yeah. I'm like, are they going to keep on using these words? Like, or are they going to yeah. phase them out? Yes. Yes, they are. It's kind of like now that I guess we've gone several years into the series, they're like, how can we freshen this up? Yeah. And it's like, let's introduce some new slang. The other thing um, I want to talk about was they mentioned perhaps the second most famous I Love Lucy episode, 
in this book. Uh, let me find the page. Oh, it's when Christie's family and the Papadakises are playing Office, right? Which yeah. I also really loved. Did you guys play Office ever when you were a kid? I mean, did I play it with you? I think we did. I think we played it with like, because my dad like randomly buys old typewriters. So I feel like we played with old typewriters. Um, I liked playing Office. We just played school. Well, school is very close to Office. Well, I was always the well, teacher. Of course. Mm-hmm. So Linny talks about playing job agency and she says uh, a little on the nose yeah so, <laughs> he, yeah. yeah he he, let he, me see he he says yeah i saw it on i love lucy once lucy and ethel needed jobs so they went to this office and a man there said what do you do and lucy said what kind of jobs do you have open and the man says what do you what do you do anyway finally lucy and ethel ended up working in a factory that makes chocolate candies <laughs> so this also, I feel like, could have been the inspiration for the plot of this of this book mm. because the episode is called Job Switching. And what happens is, uh, like, basically um, some of Lucy's checks bounce and Ricky gets really angry. And Fred and Ricky say or get mad at Lucy and Ethel being like, all you guys do is just lay around the house all day and do nothing. So they decide to switch jobs. So so Ethel Ethel and Lucy go find jobs and uh Fred and Ricky uh become, I guess, house husbands. And then the hilarity ensues. But at the candy factory, it's just like like a infamous legendary scene where Lucy's trying to make candy and the conveyor belt goes too fast and she can't wrap them fast enough. And just like the physical comedy is just really funny. I, I I like watched it this morning (laughs) and it's like, shouldn't be funny, but it is really funny just because she is funny. Yes, totally. Yeah. It's very funny. And then there was a fun fact about it is they got a real candy maker um, from C's candy to be the person who was like the professional candy maker. It was just someone they just like put to the C's candy store near the studio, I guess. And was like, oh, can we use one of your candy makers? And her name was Amanda Milligan. And oh my gosh. She had didn't know who Lucille Ball was, had never watched the show. She said that it was the most boring afternoon of her life. <laughs> and when and she works in a factory. Yeah. And she, and when the episode aired, she said she didn't watch it, and she watched wrestling instead. Amazing! That's so funny. <laughs> yeah, but I was like, oh, like once I realized that this episode was called job switching, I really mm-hmm. do think this could have provided a little nugget, totally, for Anna Martin to write to like have the little subplot about Mrs. Pike and Mr. Pike. Yeah. Yeah. So Scholastic Um, comes to Anna Martin and says, we need to teach eighth graders about mortgages. Go. Yes. And she's like, what I love Lucy episode can I use? (laughs) Exactly. Every, I wonder actually if every babysitter's club book is based on an I love Lucy show. (laughs) Wait, that would be a fun thing to map. (laughs) I guess I'd have to watch it. That's our next that's like, podcast. That's our next, yes, exactly. <laughs> um, I but, so we've already done vitamin and vegemin, mm-hmm. and now we've done job switching. Um, mm-hmm. like to me, those are the two most iconic. Those are the two. Episodes. Yeah, I'm, I'm wondering if there's a third that comes next. Yeah, I don't know. 
Um, but yeah, the Vita Mita Vegemin is the most famous. Um, yeah. And then job switching is kind of the second. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that was fun. That was fun to read about. And then I started thinking about other movies that kind of inhabit the same plot. And I, do you remember Mr. Mom? Mm-hmm. Kind of the same plot also. He loses his job. His wife goes to work. And now he's at home with the kids. Mm-hmm. And hilarity also ensues. But I love it's that It's very movie. funny when women work and men stay at home. Yeah. <laughs> well, what's interesting is when, I don't know, I think Andrew, who's my nephew, was maybe nine or ten. My brother put it on, that put on Mr. Mom as a movie to watch. And like... Andrew was like fascinated by it. He was like, we like stopped it for dinner mm-hmm. and we just kind of forgot about it. But then later on he was like, oh, can we finish watching that movie? Mm-hmm. Like something about watching a man do like the woman's work or the mom work, like really fascinated him. Well, that's weird because he your your brother's often on hiatus. Like your brother does a lot of that stuff. Like it's not like yeah. Your and my brother basically—he basically is Mr. Mom. Yeah. So <laughs> I like I don't I I would have I thought you were going to tell the story that Andrew was like I don't get it like what's the deal with this well movie? I don't know I mean I don't know the reason why he was so transfixed by it but it was mm-hmm. just weird because he doesn't usually want to watch a lot of movies mm-hmm. <laughs> and especially like comedies from the eighties yeah well <laughs> so but Michael Keaton is very charismatic Fair enough. so I don't blame him. That's so funny. Hot take. Hot take. take. I would like to say also, um, my friend Liz, who Esme knows, she said her first crush was Michael Keaton (laughs) when she was like in the second grade. I'm like, that's really weird. (laughs) Yeah. Listeners, if anybody else's first crush was Michael Keaton, let us know. I do think that's probably an unusual one. Yeah. That's funny. Yeah. Uh, did you also catch the We Are the World reference, Anne? No. On, on page 37, uh, Mom says, we've got a problem here. And Jordan says, duh. And then Mom says, I heard that. We are a family. And then Jordan sings. I'm not going to sing it because we'll owe somebody money. Jordan sings, we are the world. We are the people. And then Dad That's yells hilarious. at him. Yeah. Well, also interesting that he didn't start singing We Are Family. But I yeah. guess we are yeah. the world is more timely. Yeah. Well, and Jordan, you know, so Jordan would have been, if he's 10 in 1990, mm-hmm. if we pretend their birthdays move up, he would have been five in 1985, which is just a little younger than we were. And like, we are the world was everywhere. I remember that being just ubiquitous. There was something else super weird I circled on that page, though. Did you guys catch it? Uh, there's a parenthetical at the top. Finally, mom spoke up, parentheses. Sometimes it's nice to have a mother who speaks her mind. Other times it is dibly horrible. What the fuck does that mean? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think that's just a 11-year-old middle school. Like, I don't, I'm pulling away from my parents and I don't always want to hear your bullshit. I don't know. Sounds a little sexist um, to me. Mallory. Yeah. Okay, continue. We are the people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I wish I would have caught that reference. That's no. what happens when you start reading it at like 11 p.m. the night before. I almost texted you when I read you it. Like, we are the world. I could have gone really deep on that. 
<laughs> I just watched like a Weird of the World like YouTube weird video about like you know Michael Jackson, but whatever. All right. So you don't have any off the cuff things to say about We Are the World? No, just that it was like I feel like it's just one of those cultural phenomenons that we don't have anymore that it just is not possible to have. Um, oh, just because our media landscape is so splintered. Yeah, it's just like no one would think it was a big deal if that happened mm. now. I don't think I know what it is. Is it like a benefit concert or something? Mm-hmm. It's not. It, yeah, it's not really. A, it was a song. Okay, it was USA for Africa. Yeah. Mm. Yikes. Yes, it was to raise money for Africa. And <laughs> it was you know. basically. That's so cringy. <laughs> I know. It was every like pop star there was mm-hmm. from Michael Jackson, Lionel Richie, I think like Willie Nelson, Cindy Lauper, like ev- literally everyone. Mm-hmm. Produced by Quincy Jones. Yeah. And what was, I was like thinking about, I, I often think about when I go down my YouTube, my nightly YouTube hole, <laughs> it's like, I do miss the internet's great, but it's the internet has made it. So we don't have these types of cultural phenomenons anymore mm-hmm. because like no one would care. I mean, it wouldn't yeah. be a big deal if like all of today's pop stars got like, whatever, like Justin Bieber, Ariana Grande, yeah. like it's like no one would care. Um, yeah. there, yeah. Oh we, man, it really is everybody. I mean, I don't know. I think there are still huge cultural moments, right? Like was that dress blue or was it gold? <laughs> that yes, those are that's what those are our new cultural <laughs> phenomenons now. Oh my god. Name some more yeah. names, that's me. Okay, so the conductor was Quincy Jones. Stevie Wonder, Paul Simon, Kenny Rogers, Tina Turner, Billy Joel, Diana Ross, Dionne Warwick, Willie Nelson, Al Jarreau, Bruce Springsteen, Kenny Loggins, Steve Perry, Daryl Hall, Huey Lewis, Bob Dylan, Ray Charles, and then in the chorus, Dan Aykroyd, of all people, Harry Belafonte. Those were all soloists that I said before. Lindsey Buckingham, Sheila E., Bob Geldof, uh... Latoya Jackson, Marlon Jackson, Randy Jackson, Tito Jackson, Waylon Jennings, Bette Midler. Why didn't Bette Midler get a solo? Ro- Highway Robbery. The Pointer Sisters, John Oates, Smokey Robinson. Yeah. Wait, so Oates was in the chorus, but and Hall got a solo? Soloist. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. Damn, that uh, probably caused a fight. I think. Yeah. But yeah, and it's basically, that's all you heard for about a year. Is that song? Oh my God. Yeah. Damn. Yeah. Big deal. Give it a listen, Emily. Maybe. <laughs> she was like, who are these people? <laughs> I know who all those people are. Thank you very much. <laughs> Dionne Warwick has a Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> I like when Emily, like, plays the millennial. <laughs> yes. <laughs> she, she, like, puts a little extra sauce on it just for everyone. I know. Like, I'm on, I, even on Twitter. <laughs> I know. I really enjoy it, though. I re- like, that was, like, a perfect example. Dionne Warwick has a Twitter. Wait, what, um, what year was We Are the World? 85. 80, well, that's the same That's the same year as Live Aid. Yes. It was very big to, you know. Yeah. To fundraise for Charity Africa. musical. Yeah. <laughs> Yikes. It was... Um, you know what Live Aid is, right, Emily? I am nodding, yes. Okay. I just forgot. This is not a visual medium for a moment. <laughs> All right, Anne, I'm going to pull you out of your We Are the World Live Aid rabbit hole. Did Claudia eat anything and, and offer uh, anything in this yes. book? 
um, Malamars and Fritos. God. All right. They didn't they call the Malamars like the big guns or something? Yeah, it was like the junkiest of junk foods. Yeah. <laughs> so good. Um, it's been a while since I gave you all totals for tallies. So I thought that I would do that today. I think I don't think I've done that in like five or six books. So um I also wanted to we haven't added anything to tallies in a while. They continue to not really describe Mal or Jesse. Um, so things like practical and very funny or tells jokes like we've we're continuing to see jesse actually telling jokes Mm -hmm. but no one's mentioning that she does that Mm. um this is the first time in a while but the the second or third time in the series we've seen christy referred to as a tomboy mallory Mm -hmm. calls her that twice i haven't been tracking that but i'm making a little side note she also uses chic for the first time Mm. she refers to both claudia and stacy as very chic i think that's a synonym for sophisticated in a way. Yeah. Well, she also calls this some them sophisticated Interesting. twice. Okay. Yeah. So bossy, almond-shaped eyes, shy, and health food. So um, bossy, still far in the lead at 56 mentions across the series. Um, t- babyish is still popping up, 22. Sophisticated is at 42. Shy, 40. Sensitive, 25. Exotic only 10 and almond shaped only 13. I would have guessed that those were more probably just because they're offensive. So I notice them when they come up, Mm -hmm. but they haven't happened that much. And then individual 25, health food 27, and then Mallory practical 11 and Jesse is funny or tells jokes is only three. Hmm. I feel like Jesse was especially funny in this book. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I feel like they try to make her funnier. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely showing up more behaviorally, but we're mm-hmm. not getting it described. Interesting. Right. I feel like there's been so. more attention to her long, long legs lately. Well, yeah. yeah. How beautiful she is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Although Mel says Jesse's pretty, I think. Like, I think Jesse's pretty. Yeah. I'm like, is the. I wasn't is sure the, how to read that. Yeah. Is the suggestion there that others don't or like what? Yeah. I don't know. Hmm. Or is it a, a questioning the objectiveness of prettiness as a construct? Yeah, I think Mel's doing that. Yeah. <laughs> all right. What did you all have for weirdest line? Let's see. Oh, I like to find Claire said, what's destitute? Yeah, I also had destitute down. That's, I also had that one. Um, <laughs> I had a couple of Claire lines. I also, I liked when the Pike Club is trying to figure out how to save money. And Claire says, only one Kleenex instead of two. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which I thought was just like really funny. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I love that Mallory immediately reinforces her. She's like, yeah, great idea. Great idea. Like, yeah, we can think of plenty of ways. Um, this isn't really funny, but I liked it when they were playing job agency and David Michael says, now I can feed my family again I know. and buy clothes for them. And I was like, oh, God. I know. Yeah, dark, dark, dark. David Michael. Yeah, I liked it when Mallory said that um, the rec room was turning into the rec room, W-R-E-C-K. I liked what uh, a writerly yeah. thing to say. <laughs> thought it was clever. And then I also just had written down Dibble is short for incredible because I was very mm. excited to discover that. That is yeah, exciting. That would make a good episode title. But a, a destitute is also cute. I'm fine with either. Well, I think if it said poor Mallory, what's destitute, that'd be pretty good. Okay. We'll go with the, what's what's destitute. Yeah. Boom. Great. Okay. Pizza toast. Two. A social safety net? 
Great. That's that's a good sincere one. I was gonna say their their revenge prank calls. Oh, that's at the good. end of the book. Yeah, because they were pretty good. Well, they call them goof calls. Is sissy there. Which yeah, I'm, they still call them goof calls. What is that? Regionalism. Is it? We did a poll on Instagram. Lots of people said they grew up calling them that. Oh yeah. Oops. Just a New England thing. I checked the Instagram. Just sounds wrong. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Do you want to do the prank calls then? Yeah. Let's do it. Okay. Pizza toast to prank calls. Two prank calls. Two prank calls. This episode of Stuck in Stony Brook is now adjourned. Thank you to Anna Martin for everything. Stuck in Stony Brook is edited by Emily Crandall. Theme song written and recorded by Gary Schaller, performed by the band Kid Kit. You can follow us on Instagram at Stuck in Stony Brook or find us on our website, stuckinstonybrook.com. Need some books that we mentioned? Buy them from our bookshop and support both the local independent bookstore and your favorite series literature analysis podcast. Find us at bookshop.org slash shop slash stuck in Stony Brook. Lastly, if you're feeling doubly generous and you want to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, that would be super helpful. You're the best friend the girl could ask for. 